Hello and welcome to the Wednesday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Today on The Big Interview, we speak to Professor Jonathan Boff, Professor of Military History at the University of Birmingham and an expert in the First World War. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be here. Now, of course, we're going to go on to discuss the uh, current war in Ukraine. Uh, but to get a little bit of insight into that and to give us some context, can you tell us a little bit about the Russian army in the First World War and how it ultimately collapsed in 1917? Of course. Well, I mean, one of the really fascinating things about the Russian army in, in the First World War is that before the war started, everyone was rather scared of it, particularly the Germans. Indeed, one of the reasons why Germany went to war was because they were scared that the rearmament process that the Russians had had under, underway in the wake of the Russo-Japanese war was going to be working too well and was going to start to threaten German security. Even the French, in fact, who were Russia's closest allies, were a little bit worried that the Russians was, were rearming too successfully um, because that would, of course, reduce the amount of influence that Paris could have over Moscow. So the collapse of the Russian army really beginning in 1916, but obviously reaching a crescendo in 1917 and then in, into early 1918, came as a bit of a shock to very many people, certainly compared with their pre-war expectations anyway. And it really represented, and we can unpick this in a bit more detail, perhaps a little bit later, a failure of sort of whole nation war fighting, perhaps we could call it that. The inability of the Russian state to mobilize its resources adequately to fight the kind of war that it was being asked to fight. And that really fed through in three main areas, military failure on the battlefield. The Russians didn't win very many of their battles, it's got to be said, and uh, were pushed back into the borders of, of Russia proper, as it were, with, you know, German troops were well inside what is now Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, well before the revolution. So military failure was one. The second was a failure of industrial mobilization. So they were unable to produce the rifles, the artillery, the artillery shells that were required. They did make some progress on this in the course of the war, but nonetheless, it was insufficient. And then the third aspect was a failure to feed the population. And that was the bit that really did them in, if you like, that the inability of the Russian state to keep big cities, particularly Petrograd, obviously, uh, modern-day St. Petersburg, fed, contributed to the strikes and the demonstrations, which then started to, to shake the confidence of the regime in the Tsar and his government. Now, to what extent did the Bolsheviks play a role in kind of hollowing out the morale of the soldiers? Because it all comes very suddenly, doesn't it? You have these two seemingly unconnected events. You have the the Women's March in Petrograd, uh, there's an even bigger march, 130,000 plus the following day. But then suddenly, this all translates into action on the battlefield. What, was that a major factor in the collapse? Well, I think you have to distinguish between the two revolutions. So the, there's the February Revolution, which is the one you, you were referring to, which causes the abdication, abdication of the Tsar. And then you have a provisional government that comes to power, which tries to to rebuild a socially cohesive war effort, if you like, to mobilize a nation in arms, rather as the French had done in 1793, for instance, with the Levee en masse, and which proves unable 
to do that. And, and that's the point. And, and as part of the process of trying to do that, one of their ideas, which proves disastrous, is the idea of effectively giving greater rights to the Russian soldiers who historically had just been marched where they'd been point where they'd been pointed and, and sort of got on with it and didn't have an awful lot of choice in the matter. And in the course of 1917, begin to set up, you know, workers and, and military revolutionary committees. Well, they're not revolutionary committees to begin with. They're just committees that are there to represent soldiers' rights, which then the Bolsheviks do an extremely good job of organizing and, and seizing control of such that by the time of the October Revolution, which is really a coup rather than a, a revolution, masterminded by Lenin and Trotsky, of course, the Bolsheviks can seize power in the centers of power, like Petrograd, and know that the army is not going to move against them because it's been neutralized by their agitators and organizers in the Soviets around the country, around the army. What did the collapse of the army say to you, Jonathan, about the nature of the Russian soldier, you know, the First World War, the Second World War, indeed, even what's going on today. He seems to be a very sort of stoical figure, usually badly led, badly provided for. I mean, this, you know, the, the experience of the First World War seems to suggest that even they have limits. Well, I mean, there's a very famous quotation about Russia, that Russia is not a country that can be formally conquered. It can only be subdued by its own weakness and by the effects of internal dissension. And that was a quotation from Clausewitz, who, of course, fought with the Russians in the 1812 campaign uh, against, uh, against Napoleon. And certainly, I think the chances of defeating the Russian army or the Russian soldier, as you say, historically, they've always been seen as very stoical, uh, are very slim or have been historically extremely slim. However, what there was in the case of 1917 was a an expectation in the mind of the Russian soldier that revolution, when it came, or rather if it came, would involve radical redistribution of land in particular. So bread and peace and land were the three things that, that Lenin held out as, as prospects to the Russian people in 1917. And the land redistribution was going to be obviously away from the church and away from the government and away from the aristocracy to ordinary people, uh, massive agrarian reform. And what that meant for the soldiers was that they didn't want to be stand stuck in the army at the front when that redistribution took place because they knew full well that that they wouldn't be able to take part in it. So that's at least one of the major factors behind the desertions, which really start to pick up in the course of 1917. In August 1917, a quarter of a million Russian soldiers literally just start walking home away from the front. And that economic factor, if you like, or this sort of almost religious millenarian expectation of what was going to happen in the future was a large part of that. So I suppose what that tells you is that even the Russian soldier, at least then, and perhaps still now, can be economically rational. <laughs> um, uh, it's not just about losing faith in Mother, Mother Russia. There are ways, perhaps, to, to influence them that involve their own well-being. Well, that was all very interesting, wasn't it? Saul learned a lot from that. Join us in part two, when Professor Boff will be telling us what that historical perspective tells us about the present-day situation in Ukraine. Welcome back to part two of the big interview with Jonathan Boff. This is what he told us. 
It's interesting, Jonathan, your point you made about everyone being scared of the Russian army, particularly the Germans, the Austrians, presumably too, uh, before the First World War, because we can see some similarities, can't we, with the uh, the assumption that the Russian army was this huge steamroller and, and, and it was going to do just that to Ukraine in very short order. And that hasn't come to pass. So are we seeing some of the same similarities in terms of the nature of the Russian army, what it's actually capable of doing between the army of the czars, indeed the, the Soviet Russia too, uh, and the modern Russian army, do you think? It's a good question. And I, and I think there are sort of three ways that we, one needs to think about it. The, the first is in terms of kit, the equipment that they've got. The second is in terms of tactics. And the third is in terms of its release, of the army's relationship with the state. And I do think there are some similarities when it comes to equipment. We know We know that, I think, that a lot of the most modern equipment that the Russian army have, like the T-14 tanks, doesn't work terribly well, and that they've been forced to use a lot of older equipment, which presumably not only has a, a direct combat impact, in the sense that you're using less effective weapons, but must also have a morale impact. People don't like being sent into battle with second-rate kit. The second one is on this, the tactical front, where, as a matter of record, the tactics certainly that the Russians tried to use in 2022 obviously proved to be mistaken. They were trying, if you like, actually very modern articulated tactics with these battle, battalion battle groups and so on and so forth, weren't they? And very high-tempo operations, and but clearly underestimated their enemy very badly. Now, you chaps will know more about the most recent stuff than I do, but it does seem as if they are they are capable of learning, at least on the defensive, and are starting to get a bit better at some of this stuff as all armies will in the case of, of, of a war. And then the third thing is, that is this issue of, of the relationship between the army and the state. Because in the First World War, there were, first of all, the, the leadership became over-identified with military success and failure. So when the Tsar took direct military control of the armies, that hurt his legitimacy because he couldn't actually generate the victories that he thought he was he was going to, first of all. And secondly, you know, one of the precipitating factors in the Tsar's abdication in 1917, as you'll know, was the, the sort of opinion poll that the chief of the general staff did of the generals in the field. He wrote to them all and said, you know, do you think the Tsar should abdicate? And the telegrams all came back saying yes. And when, it, when the Tsar realized that he had lost the confidence of the army, that was one of the key factors in forcing him to abdicate. Similar thing happened with the German army in 1918, as you'll, as you'll be aware. I suppose that's what's different, isn't it? <laughs> or, one, or one of the big differences. You know, it, it does seem, at least so far, as if Putin has the loyalty of at least the regular military, if not Wagner and, uh, and some of these other groups. Um, there's a final really big difference, of course, as well, which I, which I suppose... Sadly, in my opinion, because I'd like to see Putin, Putin defeated, strengthens Putin's position relative to the Tsar in 1916 or 1917. And that is that this is not for Russia a total war, is it? He has so far been able to seal it off from the population. The effects on the general population of Russia have been relatively limited so far. They haven't had the economic dislocation that was caused in the First World War, never mind the you know, absolute hunger and famine and, and strikes and demonstrations that happened then. So 
you know, the prospect of the internal dissension that Clausewitz was talking about, I suppose, to me, look considerably more limited this time around, as yet, sadly. Yeah, I think we both agree with that. I mean, there isn't an alternative, is there? There's no kind of competing ideology or even power base. It seems that the oligarchy, if we can use that term generally about political support as well as the as the sort of money guys, um, are as as now, even though we've been predicting a coup for months and months and months, they still seem to have calculated that they're better off with Putin than without him for the time being. As we may be too, of course. I mean, you know, we don't know. Who knows what what any Putin replacement might look like? There's just as much chance of it being even, someone even worse than what we than. Uh, at least we know what Putin's about, or we think we do. We get some of these other loonies. God knows where we get, we end up. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, no, not not at all. But for pursuing that point, Jonathan, we were kind of of the view that anyone who did replace Putin, and our expectation from the people we've spoken to is that it's not going to be some necessarily very dramatic event. It could very easily be as simple as just telling him he's not going to stand at the March election next year, putting in someone who's from the inner circle and allowing him to go off into a sort of very comfortable retirement uh, and secure retirement. But their first imperative, we kind of think, would be to get out of the war in some way or other, not necessarily saying it's been a terrible idea, and that's never going to happen, but just saying we've got to you know, step back, rethink, regroup, this ain't over, but generally calm everything down, hopefully force some kind of stalemate onto the situation. Is that how you see it? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's the most likely outcome, in my, in my opinion, as well. Um, you know, it's hard to see what catastrophic defeat would look like for Russia, much less the, to have a view on how likely the Ukrainians are to be able to impose that catastrophic defeat. And as we've just been discussing, the internal pressures uh, on the regime look relatively limited. So it really comes down to, to as you say, within the Kremlin walls, the power brokers, rather as they did with Khrushchev, for instance, just saying it's time for you to have a holiday. You're making us look like idiots. We're interested in the issue of casualties, Jonathan. I mean, we can bandy around and, and disagree and argue as to how many casualties the Russian army has actually taken in Ukraine. But we know it's considerable and it could be up to 50,000 dead and up to 200,000 total casualties. Given that sort of number, why is that not putting more pressure on the ability of the Russian army to function? And and is this something we can learn from the Russian army's history? I mean, you know, First World War, it goes without saying it took huge casualties, as indeed it did in the second. But more recently, of course, in Afghanistan, the number of casualties, not least as the body bags began to get back to Russia, was considered to be a big factor in the, uh, in the closing down of that ill-judged expedition. Yes. I mean, one can bandy around sort of proportions, can't one? And, and you'll know, Saul, and Patrick, from your experience as well, there's obviously, there becomes a point at which there's a, a level of casualties, losses, that is sufficiently great that no military organization can carry on past that point. And that, you know, that might be 10% in a day, or it might be 30% uh, over a longer period. But it doesn't seem that we have reached those kind of thresholds in the case of the Russian army yet. And then sort of below that sort of point of catastrophic failure, I suppose, that you get with military organizations, it all comes down to, to willpower, doesn't it? And the extent to which the motivation of the soldiers and the cohesion of the teams that they are fighting in manages to hold up. 
And so far, it seems, frankly, almost despite the way the Russian army treats its soldiers, that they do seem to have managed to, to do that. Now, to what extent that is a function of, of a poorly trained army making the most of fixed defenses that enable it to preserve that kind of cohesion and control in the same way as, for instance, the German army in bits of 1918 managed to do, where it might have crumbled had it been out in the open or had it been in less in less effective defenses. Well, I suppose, you know, well, I hope the next couple of months will, will show us. But obviously, the risk is that, is that they do manage to hold out. So, and I suppose, you know, one of the lessons of dealing with, of observing, I should say, autocratic regimes like Russia, then and now, or China, is that we in the West tend to underestimate the power of the propaganda and the control that these, that these states have over their citizens and the extent to which they can get ordinary Ivans to believe that, in this case, Ukraine is a part of Mother Russia and we're doing nothing but trying to sort of liberate it and bring it back into the, the Russian fold, you know, that kind of... Uh, and that's, therefore, that these political purposes seem worthwhile. The Second World War is a really interesting example, I think, for this, because... Stalin and co. were obviously extremely effective at mobilizing not only the ideology of communism, but also Russian nationalism, or actually Soviet international, or the sort of, not we well, couldn't, couldn't call it Soviet nationalism, could you? But to encourage that army to take incredible damage and achieve incredible things. And that achievement, you know, something which after all Putin deliberately and goes out of his way to try and emulate and to 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 get his people to to, to do the same again it seems to me shows that the ability of these regimes is much stronger than we think to mobilize their populations that's what i'm trying to say really Jonathan, moving forward to what happens when this all is all over as one day it will be inevitably there's been a lot of talk about reparations this is something you know a lot about and just returning to, to that first world war comparison we were making at the beginning reparations have had shall we say a bad reputation as a as a result of the political consequences on germany the paving of the way creating a mood of resentment creating a a huge grievance that paved the way for the rise of extremism in the form of the nazi party and hitler so you know clearly we've got to tread carefully when we look at this question i think everyone's agreed that russia will have to pay in some way or other, can you see a way of getting some sort of justice for Ukraine, financial justice to help with the enormous program of reconstruction that they're, they're going to need, which won't run the, the same risks? It's very tough, isn't it? I mean, l- like you, I feel, I think all of us would feel instinctively that Russia started this, Russia should pay for it. However, as you've already alluded to, the, the reparations that were asked of, of Germany in the wake of the First World War set up a really toxic financial web that undermined international cooperation, not only in the sense that it undermined, it made it harder to deal with the depression, but then it also made it harder for the Western democracies to band together to oppose the rise of the dictatorships who fed on the unrest caused by the depression. So, you know, it was a really, really toxic legacy, first of all. And it demonstrates to you that that a country that doesn't think it is beaten 
isn't going to pay reparations, basically. That's what the Germans Germans didn't think they were had been beaten. They thought that the war guilt clause that was in, in, inscribed in the Versailles Treaty was unjust, that it wasn't their fault that they had gone to war uh, in the first place, and therefore they saw no reason why they should pay any reparations and effectively ended up not doing so. And, you know, and this comes back to Clausewitz, doesn't it? There's no, no decision in war is ever final. How one could possibly convince Russia that uh, it had lost this war in Ukraine, particularly, as I think we'd probably all agree, since the exit ramp, I hate to use that word, includes some kind of a compromise, and the prospect of marching on and occupying Moscow is just laughable. Uh, it's very hard to see how one could do that. Now, one of the schemes that the European Union in particular has talked about is to take the interest from the assets which have been sequestered by the West, mainly bonds and so on, take the interest payments on those and use put that money into a fund which will then support Ukrainian reconstruction. And as you know, that we think, no one's quite sure, we think there are about 650 billion total dollars of Russian foreign reserves and foreign assets, of which we've probably sequestered about half. So that's $350 billion. And if interest rates are at 5%, what's that? $17.5 billion a year. Well, I mean, the problem with the EU scheme is that it avoids outright confiscation of the Russian assets, which is probably a good thing because one day we'll end up having to give them back to some other Russian regime that is more friendly than the current one. But because it only deals with the interests, $17.5 billion, frankly, isn't going to go very far in the context of Ukraine. The Ukrainians are already talking about needing $600 billion. By the time they finish, they'll say it's a trillion. Uh, and I think our instinct will be to be generous <laughs> rather than the opposite, as it should be, because you know we need to make sure that Ukraine is a, a strong and, and, and steady part of the Western economic and political system after all this, I think, we probably think. So it's hard to see what one could do, Patrick, as you say. The only way to get the kind of money you're talking about is literally to take it, confiscate it from the Russians. But that isn't going to... Then you set up the 1919 problem again. And as I say, when a post-Putin regime comes along to who, that we do want to be friendly with, and one day there'll be one, it might be a long way away, but there will be one one day, they're just going to say, by the way, part of the price of doing a deal with you, West, is that we want our assets back, and we're going to have to give them back. So it's very hard to see how one can do it otherwise. Now, you know, the Victorian solution, if we were back in a, in a sort of pre-1900 kind of a world, as Saul will tell you, would have been to basically to go into Russia and hypothecate to take control, if you like, of their oil revenues, for instance, for a number of years, and insist that those oil revenues are used to pay Ukraine back. But that's not really going to be feasible anyway. So my conclusion to this is that the populist pressure on politicians to try and impose some kind of reparations is going to be really intense. It resonates with all of us in the gut in a very powerful way. But somehow we have to not only get past that, but actually we just have to say, right, we're going to write a check for $600 billion to Ukraine. And that's just, that's just the price of it. Um, and the West is going to have to pay for it. And it's worth it to rebuild the economy of Ukraine and, and, and have a good, strong ally in that area. And $600 billion sounds like a lot of money. And obviously, 
pay for all of us to have a few nice holidays. But actually, in the big scheme of things, it's a few percent of GDP for the for for the United States and the EU and the UK. It's it's nothing. It's not even on the scale of something like the Marshall Plan. So it should be relatively easily achievable, I think. Uh, and it should be seen within the context of a broader plan. Number one, if we continue to have to contain Russia, a program of building up our friends and allies around Russia to help us do that. And if we end up in the best case situation with a Russia that wants to rejoin the rules-based international order and the Western world, that we're then prepared, I'm afraid, even to give Russia money to do that, because it'll be a price worth paying. Well, I learned a lot from that, Saul. Uh, it's always good, isn't it, to look back at the historical perspective. There's always something there that tells us something important shines a light on the situation today. I mean, there were some quite um, significant comparative points, whether, I mean, the first thing I think you picked up on as well was the way that in the pre-war, pre-1914 situation, the Russian army was looked on with the same kind of or uh, as it was before the invasion of Ukraine. And once again, uh, the Colossus was found to have feet of clay, wasn't it? So, um, yeah, a bit of a, a kind of bell ringing there. Yeah, it is good to have the historical perspective. And we do have to remind ourselves occasionally, Patrick, that we are a historical podcast uh, rather than current affairs. And sometimes, of course, there's a, a, a crossover between the two. But it was really interesting hearing about the, the sort of nature of the Russian army. Uh, and as you say, the similarities, the military failure in the First World War the failure of industrial mobilization. Well, this is playing out at the moment, isn't it? The extent to which Putin's Russia can actually turn the Russian economy into a war machine. And of course, the similarities with the First World War are relevant because as Phil O'Brien has pointed out many times, Russia is not a major power in economic terms. And therefore, it's always going to struggle to do this when it's faced with an opponent, a redoubtable opponent, that is basically backed by money from the West. So in an economic sense, it strikes me that it's an unfair fight. But his third point was basically a failure to feed the population. And that's where the difference comes in, because Jonathan makes the point very clearly, what you're not seeing within Russia is this kind of serious economic dislocation, or at least not yet. And as a result, there isn't anything like the same pressure on the population to protest uh, and to ultimately turn on their rulers. But said against that, I was uh, struck by the way he said that one of the problems for uh, the Russian leadership for the rule of the Tsar in the First World War was that its fortunes, its prestige was completely tied to the events on the battlefield. So failure on the battlefield translated into a massive loss of, of confidence in the system and in the Tsar himself. And it seems to me that's that's pretty much the situation that you've got in Russia today, isn't it? I mean, Putin and the regime are completely associated with what's, what's going on in Ukraine. And uh, failure there you know, has a huge impact, I would have thought, on their standing in the eyes of the population. How that translates into regime change, or if it translates into regime change, of course, is another matter entirely. Yeah, and and of course, the, the last and, and in many ways, the most interesting point that Jonathan made was about reparations. And, you know, quite a controversial line he's taking, but is there a lot of sense in it? I suspect there is. So he, he compared, of course, with the aftermath of the First World War, when reparations really, uh, you know, 
historians disagree on this to a certain extent, but I think that the general consensus is that they played a major role in the rise of Hitler, the disgruntlement at being forced to pay for a war. They didn't believe they'd caused, then they didn't truly believe they'd lost. So Jonathan says you get round that not by going for the EU plan, which is to take the interest. I mean, it's quite a cunning one, really, isn't it? The interest on Russian foreign reserves. But, but he worked out that that's only really going to work out at about 17.5 billion a year. And Ukraine is going to need a lot more than that, a minimum 600 billion, possibly a trillion. So what do you do? Well, in Jonathan's eyes, the West has to pay. It sounds a bit nuts, but it's not the worst idea in the world, is it? And ultimately, it's going to relieve a future Russia, a future Russia that we hope at some stage will be friendly to the West of that same sort of disgruntlement that gave rise to Hitler. Yeah. And as he points out, in terms of the uh, comparative cost of rebuilding after the Second World War, etc. These numbers, they sound pretty staggering, but in the great scheme of things, they're not. And it was quite nice to hear that positive, forward-looking idea of welcoming Russia back into the community of civilized nations again, although admittedly he said that may be some way down the track. Well, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday when we'll be assessing all the latest news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.